chapter 23, and we've gone through all of them except this one. So let's look at this today. Luke chapter 23. Let's look at uh, verse 44. 23, we'll read verses 44 to 49. And basically, we're going to observe, as we look at this statement that Jesus made, we're going to, the, the approach we're going to have is we're just going to observe how Jesus died. Now, the final the final kind of impression we're getting from Jesus as he died, okay? observing how Jesus died. And, and then the question personally comes to us, how am I going to die? Not like, am I going to get hit by a car? Am I going to die of cancer? But like, in, in what state of mentality might I anticipate myself to be in? Will I, uh, what kind of uh, cares will I have? And so how will I die? We're going to learn from him today how he died. All right, here we go. Verse 44. It was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, and the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, we preached what he said last week about that. When Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. All his acquaintance and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. We'll stop right there. Again, notice the simple statement, and we'll have it up on our... Just take a couple slides over, gentlemen. Uh, the simple statement there, if you have a red-letter Bible, those red words, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. These are the last words of Jesus. You know, I was thinking um, about last words and things like that. Whenever, And I've told this story before. I'll tell it again, being Mother's Day, it kind of fits. Whenever I had a hotel... Um, I don't see it as much anymore, but I'm noticing, you know, you pull open the drawer next to your bed where the lampstand is. Commonly, there's a Bible in there, right? Uh, last few hotels I think I've been in, I didn't see one. So I don't know what, you know, there's some kind of trend here about that. But And sometimes in doctor's offices, I don't know, if, sometimes in a doctor's office or dentist's office, they'll be, you might have a Bible nearby, among other things. But it's been uh, over the last 100 years, maybe 75 uh, maybe not 100, but about the last 75 years, it'd be common to find a Bible at a hotel, right? In your room. When I see, now, when I see that, I think of a mother, the influence of a mother when I see that. The way that started was there was two guys that were, well, there was a guy, and I'll try to get his name here. Uh, this was in Wisconsin. And uh, this, this man, uh, Mr. Nicholson was his name. Um, and he was, a, he was went be John Nicholson. When his mother uh, died, he was only about, uh, let's see, just a child. I don't know the exact age. Before this guy died, you know, over 100 years ago, before his mother died, I should say, she called him uh, to her bedside and said some of her last words were, 
she said, John, promise me that you're going to read the Bible and, and pray daily. Promise me that. Why do you say no to the mom is dying, you know? And she, knew, she, got, she knows when she's got some leverage there. She's dying, promise me. And he promised his mother that he was going to read his Bible and pray every day since, since, since he made the promise to her, every day since she died. And so she passed away. Well, one time he was traveling. He was a pretty busy guy. He was traveling. He, I think he was in sales, traveling salesman. John Nicholson was his name. And he found himself in Wisconsin at a certain city in a, in a hotel. This is in the, like 1898. And uh, he gets there late at night, and the, the atmosphere of the hotel was not just hotel. There was some, a saloon nearby and people drunk, and it wasn't the best place and a lot of smoking. But he just needed to get a room. Well, at 9 o'clock at night on whatever day it was, uh, they were pretty much booked. But the clerk across the way, which they don't normally do this now, said there is another room that has an extra bed, and there is a single man that just checked it out. We, you, if you want, he's right over there. You can go ask him if you can occupy that other bed. If he's willing to, we'll check you in and we'll arrange for this. And he looked around and everything. He saw another man decently dressed that was doing some work to the side there. And um, this man's name was Samuel Hill, and he, he, who was also another traveling salesman. They were both traveling salesmen. And so he goes, hey, he told him my situation. They're all booked. The, the, the clerk said I could ask you if it's okay if I use the other bed in your room. It's just me and it's just you. Is that okay? Yeah, and they agreed. He goes, that's fine. Okay. So Samuel stayed in the lobby doing his work, and the other man uh, went up to the room and got doing some of his business work, got into the room, got over his side of the room where the bed was and started doing whatever he needed to do past 9 o'clock into the later hours. Later on, Mr. Hill came into the room. They probably greeted each other briefly. Mr. Hill went right to sleep. Say, uh, uh, John Nicholson continued on, and, and he's the one who made the promise to the mother. Um, and he was there doing his work. And then finally, he's like, wait a minute. I got, it's late, but I'm going to read my Bible. He's tired. I'm going to read my Bible. I haven't read my Bible today. So he started to read his Bible. And all of a sudden, this guy, uh, Mr. Hill, woke up. And he's like, whoa, what is, what's going on here? Oh, I'm sorry. He, and Mr. Hill thought, because he, he had already fallen asleep. He thought he'd left the light on. And so he goes to turn the light off. He goes, he goes no. and the other guy says, no, don't, don't turn it off. I, I, I just needed to, I have to read my Bible every day and talk with him, is what he said, as well, every day. And the, and the Mr. Hill says, well, not without me. And then so they go, let me do, well, let, let me read some too. And so they ended up right away kindling a little friendship there and found out he was a Christian. They're both Christians. And they end up reading John 15, according to this account. John chapter 15. And they end up praying together. Then they end up staying up late to like 2 o'clock. But part of their conversation as Christian businessmen traveling and not finding a, always a wholesome place was that, you know, it'd be nice if there was like a, a fellowship of Christian businessmen. And it'd be nice. And they, they ended up later on creating this friendship uh, with another third Christian businessman. And it became what you, what you know as the Gideons. It's, just a, it's a parachurch organization that they do several things, but among those things is they, they, their goal was to make sure that nobody would fall asleep in a hotel anywhere without having a Bible nearby. Now think about that. Who's triggering this type of stuff? That, that I think of a mother influencing her son 
on her, some of her last words, and he took that seriously and found himself in a situation where another guy saw the value of that, and they wanted to apply it to something that society could benefit with in hotel rooms. Isn't that good? That's how a mother died. You know, I don't know what she died of, but her words were something precious to him and influenced us. <laughs> you can find a Bible usually nearby. Jesus said his last words are influential. I, I mean, we see that he said his last words. I'm saying I think they're influential, and we just kind of look at them for a minute. But look what's happening here. Look at verse 44. Again, we looked at some of this, but the context that Luke lays out for us, remember verse 44, what does it say? It was the sixth hour. So they're reckoning. That'd be like noon, the way they reckon their time for Luke. John does it a little differently. Noontime, what does it say? Darkness over all the earth till the ninth hour. That was a supernatural thing. God dimmed the lights of the sun, and it was dark, and it was dark, not like clouds. It was like, whoa, God did something. He doesn't do that. That doesn't happen at every crucifixion. It was getting people's attention, letting them know it's not just anybody that they're crucified up here, that's crucified up here. That centurion figured that out. It was dark. There were, Matthew said there was also an earthquake. But the account of Luke says, verse 45, the sun was darkened. And then it says the veil of the temple was rent in the Someone could preach right there. But the gist of that is there's a very thick veil separating a holy, a holy section in the temple from the holy of holy sections, which is smaller. And that thick veil was showing that you don't just, not just anybody can just come into God, and not just anybody can just come in any time. But God says, here's who can come, a priest once a year, not without blood, and that's it. And he come and there was the Ark of the Covenant, that would be Ark of the Covenant, Ten Commandments, and he'd have to sprinkle blood, and there was a little thing he did, praying and confessing the sins of the nation. But the thick veil um, separated the holy place where God manifested his presence there from just the holy and then the common outside. There was a separation. That Bible says it was rent, and it wasn't because priests went in there and rent it. They said it was very tall and it was very thick. And I think even one of the other accounts says it was from top to bottom, which means it was that. You don't just... Some of us could probably rip one of our garments right now, and it'd be hard, and it's real thin. It's really thin. How about something thick? So what's happening? God's doing a supernatural thing by dimming the lights of the sun. And then, as Matthew tells us, there was also an earthquake. And then here he rents. It's not even, it's wherever the temple was. I don't know how the proximity, but it's not that far away. They hear this, the, the veils rent. Whoa. A whole other message we can preach, but that Hebrews tells us that signifies that the way to God, there's a new and living way to go to God. And it's re, that veil represented the tearing of the body of Jesus. Because his body was torn, we're, we have our faith in him. His body was torn. It took his body to be torn for me to come to God. It doesn't take you being good for you to go to God. It doesn't take you being a religious, being Baptist, Catholic, or anything to go to God. It took his body being torn, bleeding, for me to come and forgiven to God, washed through his blood. So that veil was rent, and it shows that it's not just a priest that can come to God. Anybody can come to God now. And then look at verse 46. We preached when he said, it is finished in John. 
where Luke calls it, he cried, verse 46, with a loud voice. That's when he said, it is finished. But Luke just says, he cried with a loud voice. And then the last statement, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he gave, having said this, he gave up the ghost. People die different ways. And I don't mean by like, by physically how they're executed or, or they pass away. They die in different spirits. Let me give you a comparison of different people. Voltaire, who all these intellectual people like to quote Voltaire and all these others and, and say he was so wise. Voltaire died saying this. He was a French philosopher. I am abandoned by God and man. I shall go to hell. Oh, Christ. Oh, Jesus Christ. In contrast to that, the author of the hymn, Rock of Ages, who died at age 38, said this in his death, I enjoy heaven already in my soul. My prayers are all converted into praises. Here's another couple of contrasts. Thomas Paine, a great writer, um, but he had written some things very secular-minded, godless, and he, one of them was called The Age of Reason, and he said some of his final words were this, I would give the worlds if I had... I would give the worlds if I had never published The Age of Reason. Lord, help me. Christ, help me. Stay with me. It is hell to be left alone. That's what he said. These people who are so wise and strong and all that stuff, they people celebrate them in these universities. Not all of them die that way. In contrast to that, Richard Baxter, 16, from the 1600s, a uh, uh, Puritan preacher, died saying, I have pain, but I have peace. I have peace. A couple other contrasts. Winston Churchill, I admire him as a visionary and leader and all that. I just had some weird things I read about his last words. One of them I'm not going to say because I haven't got it confirmed it, but there's another statement I did get it confirmed, and one of his last statements was, I'm bored with it all. And he went into a coma and died nine days later. In contrast to that, John Knox, who was nearby years before him in would be Scotland, I suppose, he, who was the influencer of Presbyterians, he uttered these piercing words when, before he died, live in Christ, die in Christ, and the flesh shall not, and the flesh need not fear death. Here's a couple of other contrasts. One man named Cesare Borgia, listen to this statement. Ask yourself if this is you, please. This man said, when I lived, I provided for everything but death. Now I must die, and I am unprepared to die. He prepared everything else. In contrast, this man named August Strindberg, Strindberg, a, Sweden, a Swedish dramatist who was a Christian, died in May of 1912, left a legacy of forgiveness and redemption by dying with a Bible clasped tightly to his chest and saying, it is atoned for. This person knew he was ready. It's atoned for. I'm prepared. We could, I got some more. I'm not going to quote them all. Do you, all, do you realize, though, that... So we're talking about Jesus dying in his, in his statement... We, we know this, but let's just say it. Jesus came to die for our sins, but he also came to give the message of how to have faith in him. And he came so that we can feel and know we're prepared when we die. 
He didn't leave us with question marks. There's religions that call themselves Christian religions that are offended with the idea that we would say, you can know for sure you're going to heaven when you die. There's actually people in Christian religions that say, that's offensive. How could you be so arrogant to think that you can know for sure you're going to heaven when you die? And I can say back, the Christ of the Bible says, verily, verily, I say unto thee, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Jesus says, verily, verily, that's saying, amen, amen, count on this, count on this. I'm glad Jesus came to, so that I could be, I can be prepared and know I'm prepared. Let's look at these words. I'm going to make seven observations here. How, how did Jesus die? Let's observe how he died and, and try to relate with it, and then we'll wind it down. I have seven observations. First of all, he died with prayer. Well, look what he says. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Wait a second. He's praying. No, wait a second. Look at verse 34. This is his first statement. His very first of seven statements. Uh, Luke doesn't have all seven. He only has three. The other gospels show the other ones. But look at verse 34. His very first statement's a prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's a, it's a gracious prayer, but it's a prayer. And then his last statement, verse 46, is a prayer. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. It's good to start with prayer and to sign off with prayer, huh? It's good to do that for yourself. Begin the day, end the day, some way with prayer. Wrap it up. That's what Jesus does. Prayer on his lips. It should be natural that we pray. I think that's what Paul means by pray without ceasing. Like, yeah, just always in that spirit of prayer. There he goes. Well, how did Jesus die? He died with prayer on his lips. He died, secondly, notice the next observation. He died with scripture on his lips. He died quoting scripture. Did you know that? Look in Psalm 31. Look in Psalm 31. Hold your place. And David had dealt with a lot of stuff in his life, the king and prophet David. And if you read the psalm, even if you didn't read like Samuel, first and second Samuel, if only you read the psalms, you'd be like, man, David had a lot of people that didn't like him. <laughs> well, Psalm 31, look at verse 4, 5, and 6. Psalm 31, verse 4, 5, and 6. David says, pull me out of the net that they have laid privily for me, for thou art my strength. Into thy hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. I have hated them that regard lying vanities, but I trust in the Lord. That thing right in the middle there, verse 5, into thy hand I commit my spirit. Jesus says to the Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Commend and commit are similar words. He's quoting scripture. Jesus, I was just thinking this, like, how would we be? We're really bad. We're very dysfunctional. What would I be saying? I'm dying. Can anybody, did anybody text me? Did you check my Facebook page? That's silly stuff. He's thinking of the scripture. He's thinking of the Bible. 
into the hand. It comes off his lips. It's part of his language. Part of his language. Let's look at another observation. We see he died with prayer, with Scripture. He died with yieldedness. It's showing a yieldedness of Jesus. Yielded. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. You know what commend means? It means commit. It means, here you go, depositing right there. It means to deposit. When you take your money and you go to the bank and you drop it in, you're commending it to them, you're committing it to them, you're depositing it right into their hands. In the last couple months, you'd be like, I want to check out my bank. I did a search on one of our banks like a month ago or whenever we were, there was some banking crisis, and I did a little search on the name of one of our banks our church uses, and now I keep getting these Google feeds. Oh, you know, this bank is doing it, and they keep sending me these Google feeds because they knew I did a search on it, and it seems okay so far, but, you know, you can't just deposit Everything's going to fail. All man's institutions are going to fail eventually, you know. But God's hands don't. They're the everlasting hands, right? Jesus said, into thy hands I commit, I commend my spirit. I don't know where I read it, but I heard that was one of the more... If you do a search on martyrs, Christian martyrs that die in their last words, which, really, by the way, uh, Miss Miller gave me this book. It's been interesting reading it. Little statements of how people died and, or their last statements. But one of the more popular phrases to say by a lot of Christian martyrs was this right here. Father, to thy hands, I commit my spirit. Later on in the book of Acts, Stephen said, Father, receive my spirit. Catch me! Right? Showing yieldedness, dependence. You know what's interesting? The book of Luke shows us the very first recorded words of Jesus and the very last recorded words of Jesus before his death. Look at Luke chapter 2, 49. Jesus, I'm certain, said things between before he turned age 12. I'm sure there were things that were said, but nothing was recorded until this moment. And Luke has his first recorded words. They had gone to what we believe was the Passover as a family, and then they were traveling back home, and the parents thought Jesus was in the, the entourage that was traveling, but he wasn't. So the parents have to run, oh, we have a missing child. So they go back to Jerusalem, and they find Jesus at the temple, speaking with the scholars and different people there, the men, and they were amazed to hear this, what they would think maybe a protege here, or not a protege, but you know some kind of genius um, and so they're talking with him. Look at verse 48. The, the, um, the parents get back. They saw him. They were amazed. Luke 2, 48. His mother said unto him, Son, this is mom. We're looking all over for you. Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Why did you do this to us? Behold, thy father, referring to Joseph, the foster father, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, how is it that you sought me? Wist ye not? That means, don't you realize that I must be about my, my father's business? Capital F in our translation because it's showing he was speaking about this father. But the idea, they didn't understand the saying that he said right there, at least for the time. But what's happening? They're like, where are you? Where, we, didn't you know your father and I were looking for you? He goes, how is that? Didn't you know I would be about my father's business? I'm, I'm, I'm busy 
working for him. I'm, I'm, I'm yielded to him. Even as a 12-year-old, he's yielded to God. Kids, uh, we, can, we should be able to, I think you can expect a child to accept the Lord as their Savior young in life. That can, that's possible. And Jesus, the Scripture says stuff about that. But even as you get older, about 12 years old, you know, early teens, like, hey, we, we want you to yield yourself to the Lord. We want you to be about your father's business. We want to challenge that in messages from the pulpit and at camp and at conferences and to challenge young people to, to yield themselves and be about the father's business, not just your business. Jesus, what I'm saying here is Jesus shows even as a child he was yielded not to his own will but to his father's will. And look what it says at the end. Chapter, the, his last words are back to chapter 23. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. So let's think about this. He came, to the, he came to the earth, took on the form of a man and experienced being born and childhood and all that. And he realized he was yielding himself to the Father. He's yielded his life. He's yielded himself, his, uh, everything in his life. And then by age 30, he collects the disciples. And then the Passion Week, he yields his body to death. And now there's nothing left to yield but the Spirit, okay? He's given Himself body and spirit to the Father, fully yielded. That's, what, that's an example to us is that um, I need to yield my body to the Lord as a living sacrifice and then give Him and let Him be glorified right now even in my spirit, in my immaterial part of me. The Bible even says, you're bought with a price, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. They belong to Him anyways. But then when I come to die, my body is worn down and the mileage is too high and it's going to go to the junkyard of a grave to be resurrected one day by God's uh, miracle there. But all I got left is my soul and spirit, right? Catch me, Lord. I yield that back to you too. That's what Jesus is saying. Another observation. Number four, think about this as we observe how he died. Not profound, but maybe for some unthought of or denied. He is yielding, he is dying only to be, to be removed to a separate existence. He's not ceasing to exist. How did Jesus die? He died, his body died, and he continued on to exist in another way. See, existence continues from the day you're born forever. God's existence was forever this way and forever that way. That's called being eternal. Our soulish being is immortal, that is, we'll... We have a beginning and never have an ending. We will live somewhere. You'll live somewhere forever. Jesus dies and his body, his body ceases and it gets wrapped up and buried and resurrected. But his spirit and soul went somewhere. You can chase scriptures down that say a few hints about what happened. But he's, he went somewhere. Three days later to be racked with his body and show up. But he went somewhere. His soul and spirit went somewhere. There's some movement that you could look at in some other scriptures. And that tells us just because you die doesn't mean it's over. Brother Adam preached a good graduation message, and he says, you know, we use these two words, graduate 
and commencement. And they're kind of two different words, but they work perfect for the day. Because you're finishing something, you graduate. And then we call the service a commencement. Now we're starting something. And that's like death. You're going to graduate from this life and commence in another realm. Commence to God in your soulish body or commence to hell in a soulish body. That's what the scripture teaches. That's what Jesus himself teaches right in this book of Luke. The rich man, the poor man, they both died. Poor man was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, which was another place of paradise until Jesus eventually ascended the cross and it became something, opened it up. But the rich man goes to parad- or the poor man goes to paradise, the beggar. The rich man, right when he dies, they said they buried him. They said they buried him. But then it says in hell he lifted up his eyes. So there must be a soulish body that has eyes and can have sensories. A soulish body that was in hell. Jesus spoke about that. Whoa. Yeah. Well, Jesus, we're learning about how he died. With prayer, with scripture, with yieldedness. He died only to be removed to another type of existence. Number, what are we at? Number five, volitionally. Here's another observation about Jesus. Jesus died volitionally. That means he was, he, it was in his will. It was under his prerogative. See, some of us, okay, let's just stop a second. Here's the deal. It's like the old saying, eat right, exercise, die anyways. Right? Huh? I'm not telling you not to eat right, not exercise. But here's the deal. So what if I, some of us are going to live a long time and have like a nice peaceful winding down and we'll, and we'll pass away. By the way, Brother Bob Devon died peacefully and we're happy for him and for his family. It was a sweet moment. I got to see kind of the just hours before it. And that's great. That's how my, it reminded me of my grandpa, my mother's father. And that's kind of like, that's what I want. <laughs> You know, but I don't always get to choose that kind of stuff. But I may die peacefully. You may die. It may be messy, unplanned, and violent. Okay? That might be what happens. But in this, but what, here's, here's what I'm trying to say is for us, something has a claim on all of us, no matter if you live. For five years, 10 years, 90, 100 years, something has a claim on every single one of us. Death has a claim on us, and we're going to pay them. The payment's death. The, pay, the wages of our sin is death. Because we've sinned, we're going to have to pay death. That's like, you. I got gotcha. you. Death has a claim on me. Because I've sinned by one man, sin entered into the world. That's through Adam. So death is passed on all men, for that all have sinned. So I'm like, I got it. It came to me. I'm dying. You know, thanks a lot, Adam. You know, but I got it. By one man, it came on me. The Bible also says one man, the, 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 the freedom from that comes on you too for free. That's in Romans 5. But so death has a claim on me, and I'm going to die, whether it's by cancer or by an accident or whatever, I'm going to die. But do you know what's interesting? Death has, has no claim on Jesus. It couldn't say, I'm getting you. He holds the keys of hell and death. He holds the keys of life. 
So when he died, this whole, his whole life, especially this whole apprehension, crucifixion, all that, this whole thing is, I'm doing this in my timetable, my, under my uh, terms. Let's look at this passage. Go to John, where I'm, he helps his words explain what I'm trying to say a little better. John chapter 10. Let's look in John 10. Again, what we're saying is Jesus, we're observing his, how he died, and I'm just here to tell you, he didn't die like he was a victim, and he just, he couldn't control it, and he wished things were a little different. He was under perfect control in this whole thing. John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. Listen to Jesus' words. John 10, verse 17 and 18. Therefore doth my Father love me, because... I laid down my life. I, 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 I set it down. I relinquish it. I hand it over that I might take it again. Verse 18. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. Do you see that? So when, when Judas did his thing and betrayed him and did all his little conniving and all that and arranging, he took him and, and Jesus was taken and and even, I mean, he was under full control. You can read that some of the details in the account where you see he was under full control. He's just letting it happen. Okay. And he goes to Pilate, and he goes to Herod, and he goes to Pilate. And, and he was, by and large, very silent as a lamb, dumb before his shears. He didn't open his mouth. But he's in full control. Nobody's taking it. He's laying it down. No man taketh, verse 18, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment I received of my Father. He's in full control. Now, he's, he, contained, he chose to contain himself to a human body, perfect human body that would never have gotten cancer or anything, but it was being impacted and it was being smashed and crushed and all this other thing except his bones so that he was allowing his life to go out from him. He was in full control. I, I can't relate with this part of it because I am subject to death and I am subject to, to him. I'm subject, I'm, gonna, I'm going to die. And I can't be like Jesus, well, nobody's going to take it. I, I can die when I want. Mm, not really. I kind of have a script in my mind that I hope will happen. But it may not happen how I want because I don't have the keys of death and hell. He does. He has those keys. So that evermore tells me, I want to be with Jesus. <laughs> you know, that's why we trust Jesus not in our brain to give the doctrinal religious nod to Jesus, but we trust Him in our heart as our Savior. Jesus, be my Savior. Confess with our mouth. Believe in as the scripture says, you, thou, confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in thine heart that God was raised from the dead, and thou shalt be saved. Okay. So if I'm trusting Jesus as my Savior, he's, he's going to allow me to die, my body. It must needs happen. But he's going to take up my soul and secure me, and I will not pass to condemnation. I'll pass from death unto life. He's got this prerogative he holds on death, even on his own death. He died volitionally. Two more, com two, two more comments. See, think about this. 
He died young. Fulfilling. Young yet fulfilling. How old was Jesus? Does it appear? From what we can tell, he was what? 33, yeah. It says he began his public ministry around age 30. And 33, man. You know what's really cool? Think about this. He's, I think, a no now, the Bible does say, so Jesus died, rose from the dead, and he's, and he's got this uh, glorified body. And the Bible says, you know, we're going to be like him. That is kind of in our glorified, because you're going to be resurrected one day. So I'm like, man, I'm going to look like a good-looking 33-year-old forever. Yes. You know, <laughs> good-looking 33-year-old, because I'm past that now. So, Yeah. Anyway, so Jesus died. Here's what the point I want to make, though, is uh, Jesus died young yet fulfilling, um, fulfilling God's plan. Again, it would be nice to live a full life. Some people don't. Think of David Brainerd. Some of you know who David Brainerd is. He was, a, from what we can tell, the first American missionary to the Native Americans back east. He died like in his 20s, very young. Wasn't that right, Rusty? Did some t- okay. 26, very young. Um, and then William Borden, some of you have heard of him. You've heard of the Borden Milk and all that company? He was a, an heir to millions of that, of that family over 100 years ago and uh, became a Christian. His mother became a Christian first, I believe. He decided to go to Yale, and then he went to Princeton. He, he, he trained for ministry. He was a pretty dynamic leader, too, too, even in his realm, his circles here in the United States. And he wanted to be a missionary to Muslims in some area of China. William Borden. And so he started to prepare for it, traveled to Egypt, and got sick and died there. He's buried there in Egypt. And uh, some people are like, man, what a waste. It's not a waste. I mean, he was died surging. He died leaning into what he felt God wanted him to do, even though it was young. I'm not that young. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die leaning into obeying God. Leaning into everything he's, I know he's told me to do, even if it's something humble behind the scenes in my house. I want to die leaning in that way. If they don't write a book about me, that's all right. God has it written. But he died young. And then Jim Elliott, what a beautiful story there. You could see the same thing. Young guy with a couple of his friends died serving God uh, very briefly in South America. By the way, it's interesting, these, even these three that I just mentioned, just off the cuff, that died young, if you follow kind of the effect that, other, that they had on other people, like, whoa, man, Jim Elliott inspired a lot of people. I think he went to Wheaton College or something at the time, which was really good then, but, and it inspired more missionaries. And William Borden, they said there was kind of a, it was either of Princeton, one of those, there was kind of a little revival of missionary interest from their form, because of their former student who died trying to serve God. Those used to be Christian schools, by the way. And so sometimes you don't know, I mean, the influence, Jesus, obviously, the greatest influential person ever, ever, and the greatest influential death ever, he dies young but fulfilling. I want to live a fulfilling life that is, it's fulfilling, I'm just doing God's plan. Last of all, and it's not the best, I kind of already related to it, but listen, he died a violent death, but had a safe landing. This is violent and messy. Violent and messy. We would not want to see this. I mean, they made the Passion of the Christ, I never saw it, but I kind of got little glimpses of it. You get a sample of the messiness of it. 
violent and messy. He was composed. You can, if you get these seven statements, he's composed. He's intentional in what he said. He's meaningful in what he said. And, but the whole picture just seems, ugh. It's not a peaceful winding down, but a safe landing, right? He goes to the Father. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Read this. How will you die? Again, I'm not talking about the means by which your life is extinguished, but in what mindset? What will I get a chance? Some of us, it could cap, we could just all of a sudden have an aneurysm and just go, Psh, I understand that. But now start thinking, what if I died today? What can I, what would be a good to, way to live right now? What would be good some things just to be saying right now as a habit of life? Here's what, this is an interesting little book. Here's what this author says. Our end may be nearer than we realize. When it comes to let, when it comes, let us not cringe before death as a tyrant. If he who conquered death and all its powers is resident within the heart, then death is only a departing to be with the Lord, which is far better. No fear will be ours. He quotes another preacher. George MacDonald said, How strange this fear of death is. Yet, we're never frightened at a sunset. <laughs> what is death to the Christian but a glorious sunset and the dawning of a more blessed day in a summer land where eyes are never wet with the tears of separation? That's good, isn't it? So how am I going to die? Jesus shows us how to live and he shows us how to die. And when we trust Him as our Savior, it's safe doing both with Him. It's safe and right to do both with Him. Let's bow for prayer.